If you're using a Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 976. I've got to do a little bit of review. Just We started Ephesians chapter 2 last week. I'll touch on a couple of the main points and then we'll push forward. Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we learned that everyone starts with a particular view about man's human nature. Everybody starts with this view. Uh, individuals start with this view. Uh, sociologists start with this view. When sociology says something about society, they're starting with a certain view about people. Psychology starts with a certain view about people. If you go see a counselor, they're starting with a, a certain uh, presupposition as to what your root problem is. And in secular psychology, it's not you. The problem is your mother or your father. The problem is your culture, the problem is your environment, the problem is the list goes on and on, but it's not you, usually, in secular uh, psychology or secular counseling. A religion starts with a certain view. Some religion starts with a view that's quite opposite of what I think the Bible teaches, what I think is true religion, but everybody starts with a certain view. So before you get to somebody, uh, somebody's advice or what somebody has to tell you, you ought to ask yourself, where are they coming from about who we are? Because the solution is only going to be as good as the diagnosis to begin with. What kind of people are we? So there are three ways to start from, three basic ways. Number one, people are good, basically fine. Number two, people are flawed, that is, we're some mix of good and bad. That's where most people are at including people that go to a church on Sunday. And then the third view, which I think is the biblical view, is that people are dead. That is what theologians call total depravity. So people are good. Our, our failure to flourish, that is our limitations, are due to all these external factors. If we could solve these external factors, if we could have the, the right economic system or enough education, or if we could solve those problems out there, we would find out how good we really are. By the way, sociology, going back to in economics, in my understanding, the reason why capitalism succeeds so well is it starts with a pretty close to the right view of human nature. Capitalism, let me start with socialism. Socialism is everybody's going to share and share alike because people, if they're basically good, they'll work hard and they'll share with their neighbors. But capitalism says, I think people are greedy. And I think if you reward them for working hard, it doesn't mean everybody that does well is driven by their greed, but capitalism does well because it rewards greed. And so capitalism flourishes, whereas socialism drives down an economy because people don't start off good. People start off selfish. The second view, people are flawed, that is, this view recognizes we have internal deficiencies, but our condition is not hopeless. We've still got sparks of goodness. And somehow those sparks of goodness, of inerrant goodness, if they are cultivated, it will blossom into even more goodness. I just heard, uh, I listened to John Stossel's videos. He puts out 
three, four, five minute videos about once a week on different issues. He used to be a very uh, liberal news person. He's now a much more, he's a libertarian. He's much more conservative. His videos are really, oftentimes they're fascinating. I really enjoy them. But he ended a video he came out with this last week, like, we're mostly good, right? Like, I believe we're mostly good. And so that drives his thinking. We're mostly good. I like to think we're mostly good people. The third view that people are dead, that is total depravity, we defined that last week, or it's defined in theology as every facet of our being is corrupted by sin. It does not mean we're as bad as we could be. We could be worse. God puts in restraints based upon common grace or common mercy that keeps us from being as bad as we could be. But total depravity means everything about me is affected by sin. There is no part of me that is not corrupted and tainted by sin. My thinking is corrupted by sin. I think a certain way because by nature I'm sinful. I will certain things driven by my sin. And I feel certain emotions or I cultivate certain emotions because they're corrupted by sin. Every aspect of our being outside of Christ is corrupted by sin, though it's restrained by conscience and government, by punishment. So we started with that. So it's kind of interesting that I shared a John Stott quote with you last week, which is a terrific quote, which sets up Ephesians chapter 2, because it sounds like my camp, where I'm at in my understanding of the Bible, my understanding of uh, Reformation theology, Reformation teaching, going back to... Further to that, back further, Augustine, going back further to the apostles, it says we're dead in trespasses and sin. Who wants to be in that camp when you've got a whole world saying, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm pretty good, you're pretty good. Between the two of us, we can, we can smooth out our rough edges and we'll all be just fine. And then I'm in the camp that says, no, we're dead in... I mean, it seems like a horrible place to be, a, la a bad landing spot. Nobody wants to hear that. And yet, it's interesting, a guy like John Stott views man as, as in some sense, much higher than any of the other camps by grace. He has a higher view of man than this camp that says we're basically fine as we are. John Stott wouldn't agree with that. But John Stott would say, you can be more than you could ever possibly imagine in Christ and by grace. So John Stott's quote was this, Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. The Bible says you're worse than you could ever possibly imagine. You're more guilty than you could possibly imagine. But what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. A second individual, oh, I, I guess I shared this too last week. If sin is not the problem, then the gospel is not the solution. That ought to drive the church. That ought to drive our ministry. That ought to drive our witness. It ought to drive uh, our ministry reaching out. If sin is not the problem, then the gospel is not the solution. Now, if I want to put that in the language that I find in Ephesians chapter 2, I would change the two words. It would look like this. 
If death is not the problem, then life is not the solution. But I can assure you, if Paul's theology is right, if he's inspired of God, the problem is death. And the solution is life. Those are the terms. That's the stakes in Ephesians chapter 2. Second individual, Alexander McLaren. Now, he looks like somebody who believes in total depravity to me. <laughs> He's a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he, he was born a little bit before Spurgeon. He lived, uh, I think, more than a decade after Spurgeon. He was a Baptist preacher in England as well as Spurgeon. Uh, and, Andrew McLaren. You, you would know Alexander McLaren if it weren't for Spurgeon. But Spurgeon became the more popular guy. He's uh, more widely read, but Alexander McLaren is so good. He's my second favorite Baptist from that era. Alexander McLaren shares similar sentiments as John Stott, where he doesn't downplay how bad we are, but he also certainly doesn't downplay God's grace, because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. He writes, or preached... Scripture paints man as he is in darker tints and man as he may become in brighter ones than anywhere else found. The range of this portrait's painter's palette is from pitchiest black to the most dazzling white as of snow smitten by sunlight. Nowhere else are there such sad, stern words about the actualities of human nature. Nowhere else such glowing and wonderful ones about its possibilities. That's the uniqueness of biblical Christianity. We can paint man so black, so, such in desperate need, so steeped in his death, and yet the church can also proclaim the brightest white. That our sins could be removed as far as the east is from the west, cast into a bottomless sea, and he, God will remember them no more. Both a hopeless situation, an entirely transformed situation because of God's grace. Alexander McLaren captures that well. So, here's where we're at. Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, which I shared with you last week, are basically a condensed version of the first three chapters of Romans. So, if you want, if you want biblical, inspired commentary on what Paul writes here, read Romans 1, 2, and 3. And you'll come closer to knowing exactly what Paul means when he writes to the Ephesians. It reads like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul's sentence, which the, the entire sentence contains seven verses in our English Bibles, and it's divided up uh, and made many sentences. But the way Paul wrote it, the one sentence starts in verse 1, it finishes in verse 7. It's interesting that Paul's sentence begins with an object and not a subject. That's not normal, uh, at least in English speaking. Generally, when you're teaching children to write, you start with a subject, a verb, and an object. Billy uh, rode his bicycle to the store to get a loaf of bread. You've got a subject, you've got a verb, and you've got an object. But when the Greek, when Paul writes a sentence and he starts with an object, which is, you were dead, it's emphasizing our, our situation. It's, 
and you were dead. And he's going to get to a most glorious subject, but he's just starting off to let you know you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And you don't really know where he's going with this dire total depravity thing until you get to what we know is verse 4, where he suddenly says, but God. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the name D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think he, he was also a British guy, a theologian, pastor. He was a medical doctor, and he became a pastor. Uh, he was slow. He's like Ray Clark slow when he taught the Bible. Like, his whole ministry, he taught... I think he finished Ephesians. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if he finished Romans. He did Ephesians, Romans. He spent time in Acts. I think John's Gospel. I mean, he, he did not. He would have had to live like Methuselah to preach the entire New Testament, I think. But D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a strong conservative in his theology in an age of liberalism. And he called the church uh, to, to believe what God said in his word. And don't apologize for it. And in describing in Ephesians this but God, he said, in a sense, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. I mean, you've got John 3.16. We call it the gospel in a nutshell. If you want to reduce it down even further, the gospel is but God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Because if God doesn't do anything, we're still dead. So let's talk about this. You were dead in the trespass... You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We talked about that last week. This deadness is not a physical deadness. You're alive, and I'm alive. And Alexander McLaren is going to, I'm going to show you a quote by him. He's going to recognize we're alive. This deadness that we, we are in a state of is not physical deadness. It's a deadness that was introduced by sin when Adam trespassed against God, and he was spiritually dead. He had no life spiritual life because of his sin. So Alexander McLaren puts it like this. The apostle looks upon the world, many colored, full of activity, full of intellectual stir, full of human emotions, affections, joys, sorrows, fluctuations, as if it were one great cemetery. And on every gravestone there were written the same inscription. They all died of the same disease, dead through sin. Yes, we have dreams and hopes and aspirations and fluctuations and intellectual pursuits. And written across your your heart is dead through sin. Dead by sin. He kept Alexander McLaren is a wonderful guy to read besides Charles Spurgeon. In spite of his sour tone. I told you last week it's like... uh, It's like the living dead. It's like zombies. A zombie is somebody who is dead, and yet he's living to merely show his deadness in eating other people. And in a sense, in Adam, we are dead, and yet we have physical life until that expires as well, and our physical life ends in the same deadness that we have spiritually. So that's how, that's how Paul starts off this deadness. Our state of death is evidenced in three ways in which you once walked. And when Paul says you, he's talking to the Gentiles. He's writing this letter. It's basically to a Gentile series of churches. And he's talking to those Gentiles. This is what you were. Here's how you walked. Here's how your Bible may say how you lived. The idea is your lifestyle. Here's what life was like. 
in your deadness. Number one, you are following the course of this world. Those are external forces and compulsions that shape the way you think. That shape what your goals are in life. What is the purpose for living? What does recreation look like? What does entertainment look like? What do relationships look like? The world has an opinion on all that. What does, what does religion look like? The world has lots of opinions about what religion looks like. The world has opinions about how you're going to go to heaven after you die. And for most of the world, it's you die and you go to heaven. It's just, it's kind of automatic. It's a free pass. That's the way it works. The world, and Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world. If you think the world is not putting pressure on you to live your life a certain way and to entertain your life a certain way and to conduct business in a certain way and to fill out your taxes in a certain way, then you don't understand how much you've already been affected by the world. Because the world is always conveying pressure on all people, including Christians. And Paul says, used to follow the course of the world. That's who you were shaped by. You thought just like the world thought. You reasoned just like the world reasoned. That's how you used to live. He says you once walked this way. So what happened to change the way they once were? He says you're not, the implication is you're not like that now. You once were like that. that was your, you were in step with the world. So what happened? Paul's not ready to tell you what happened yet. Paul's not done talking about death. Paul says, you're also, we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here you have external forces. Here you have supernatural forces. Following the prince of the power of the air. Every, every commentator, everybody that I'm reading, I think they're right. They're talking about the devil, Satan and his legions, the fallen angels with him, the fallen, what we recognize, what we would call demons. You were following, you were energized by Satan himself. Your life was conducted, it was in conformity with the world, and you were energized by Satan himself. It calls him the prince of the power of the air. Is that a literal description? Or is it a figurative description that Satan is the prince of the power of the air? I'm going to imagine that you're right in saying that the devil is not omnipresent. He's not, every, he's not God's counterpart. God is omnipresent, and so is the devil. He's not. He can only be one place at one time. So where is he? Where is he? He's not in heaven. Jesus beheld him being cast out of heaven. He's not confined to a bottomless pit. He's not... He's not in, imprisoned like the angels that departed that are referred to in Jude and 2 Peter. Where is he? I would say he's the prince of the power of the air. That term air is not the heavenlies, which the Bible kind of has two words for things up, the New Testament anyway. One is the heavenlies. This word air, it refers to the immediate atmosphere. The Greeks referred to it as our atmosphere, our sky up to the moon was dirty air. And that the really pure stuff was everything past the moon in the starry, heaven, starry heavens. Because Greeks believed everything physical was bad. And what was really good was your spirit. And the reason why the flame goes up is because it's, it's, 
It's pointing this direction of being set free into the heavens. Not the air. That's dirty. The heavens. The Jews taught then, based upon, I think, that same kind of a thinking, that the demons occupied the air around the atmosphere. I mean, William Hendrickson, who is a terrific commentator, I'll quote him towards the end, he makes a statement. He says, Accordingly, whether whatever figurative overtones are by the word air, the literal meaning here is basic. William Hendrickson suggests he's the prince of the power of the air. He has to occupy some place, and the place he's been resigned to occupy is our atmosphere, our air. He's somewhere out energizing nations, tempting people, individuals, one place at one time, but his legions energize those who are unregenerate and dead in their sin. Paul says... It's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Commentators, the majority, well, actually, I didn't see anybody that disagreed with this until me, and I didn't check that many commentaries because I just had so much time. But the general consensus is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience are basically people that are unbelieving, unrepentant, unregenerate. It's unbelievers. He's still energizing unbelievers. But I think there's more to it than that. I don't think really that's Paul's point, though it's true. I think when Paul says the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, the word disobedience here is ap- 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 it is apathia. Apathia. Apathia is, is how you would translate the Greek word, and it comes from a Greek root, which is patho, which also is the root where we get the word pistis, which is our our English word faith. So when you read about faith in the Bible, it's this Greek word pistis, or he believed. It's this this idea of pistis. So it all comes from this root, patho. And here you have the word apathia. The word means to convince or to persuade. You can see how faith comes into play with that. To trust. Somebody who has faith in Christ is convinced he's Messiah. They're persuaded by that. They put their trust in him. It's a very interesting word. I'm going to make much of it. In some sense, the most important part of that word, apathia, is the very first letter, A. Because if you've been here very long, you know what that means. When you add a A to the, to the root, patho, apathia, A is a negative. Whatever the word means, A means it's not that. An atheist is not a theist. An atheist is staking his grounds on, there is no God. I'm an atheist. An agnostic is not a Gnostic. He's not somebody who has special knowledge about God in the afterlife. He's agnostic. I don't believe there is any knowledge about God. If you're atypical... It means you're the opposite of typical. If you're asymptomatic, it means you don't have any of the symptoms that are normally associated with a certain condition. You're asymptomatic. It's no symptoms. So here you've got the sons of apathia. They are not convinced. They are not persuaded. They are not trusting. Now, if you are unconvinced, 
you're unpersuaded and you're not trusting, you're in a state of disobedience if God has revealed something. So the word is very often, especially in more modern translations, which is everybody here unless you have an old King James Bible, it, it emphasizes the disobedience part when actually the root has more to do with what comes before the disobedience. It's the, I'm not convinced, and I'm not persuaded, and I'm not going to trust. So when Paul talks about, you once were following the prince of the power of the air, that's the same spirit, the same devil, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I think he's referring to the Jewish nation. I think he's referring to the Jewish people. You once were deceived by the devil. Just like the Jewish people are deceived as a whole, there's still a remnant. But as a whole, the Jewish nation is unrepentant. I think I can demonstrate this. I'm going to have to go through it pretty quick, though. Several passages, 2 Corinthians, Romans 11, Hebrews 4, Acts 19. I'm going to hit the highlights of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says... But their minds, speaking of the Jewish nation, their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant. That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is that veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Satan has deceived them. He goes on to say in chapter 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world... The prince of the power of the air has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul calls that prince of the power of the air who has now deceived the sons of unbelief, the Jewish people who didn't receive Messiah and still aren't convinced though he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 11 is the most powerful verse of all. Or the mo it's actually the same word that's found, that's translated disobedience in Ephesians chapter 2. That same word disobedience, which means not convinced, not persuaded, I'm not trusting. It's found four times. In all of our modern translations, it's translated with the idea of disobedience when the root has to do with belief or uh, being persuaded. And so I'm going to show it to you from the old King James. I got a Get out my thus part. It reads like this. For as ye in times past have not believed, not persuaded. He's talking about Gentiles. Ye Gentiles in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through the Jews' unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. He's referring to the Jewish nation and how through the Jewish nation's unbelief, not being persuaded, rejecting the Messiah, salvation has gone out to the Gentiles. But there's coming a day where the Jews will believe. Because as salvation goes out to the Gentiles, it will then kind of turn about fair play. It will come back and... and Israel will look on him whom they have pierced and they will believe. They will mourn for the one whom they rejected. So the old King James translates the word instead of with disobedience, it uses the word believe and unbelief. I think that's much preferable. At any rate, Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to 
I'm going to skip Hebrews chapter 4 because I'm going to run out of time. So Hebrews chapter 4, I recommend it to you. It talks about, uh, it talks about those in Old Testament Israel never entered into God's peace because of their unbelief. They weren't convinced God was good enough. They weren't persuaded. They weren't trusting. They weren't leaning on all of God's provisions and promises and covenants. So the author of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jews. And he's saying, don't be unconvinced. Don't be unpersuaded. Don't be like those who perish. He's your only hope. I love the book of Hebrews. It was one of the most fascinating books to do. It'd be a fun book to redo. Then in Acts chapter 19, which is a terrific passage, because in Acts chapter 19, you've got Paul when he plants the church in Ephesus. And we're doing the book of Ephesians, which was written for the Ephesians as well as the other Gentile churches in the region. But it's written for the Ephesians. That's probably who received it first. So in Acts chapter 19, it looks like this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Well... This is obviously a relevant passage to where we're at. Paul comes to Ephesus for the first time in Acts chapter 19. And then goes on to say, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Who's he reasoning with and persuading? Jews. He's in the synagogue for three months. Yes, I'll grant you there's a couple proselytes in there. But this is overwhelmingly a Jewish audience. And for three months in Ephesus, he's trying to persuade Jews Christ is Messiah. With what result? But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, that's the exact same word that's found in Ephesians chapter 2. The prince of the power of the air has deceived them. They continued in unbelief. Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. He now goes to the Gentiles. He goes to a Gentile audience, and they receive what the Jewish audience, audience does not receive. So, going back to this situation, Paul says, You once walked under the forces, the, being compelled by the world. You were energized by Satan. But he says, that's how you once walked. You're not walking that now. What happened? What happened that they're not walking like that now? Hey, they were deceived by the devil. They were conformed by the world. How is it that that's not true any longer? Paul's not ready to tell you. He's not done talking about your deadness. He ends with, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. There are external forces upon the sinner. There are supernatural forces upon the sinner. And there are internal forces upon the sinner. And Paul now uses we all. Because now he's not just talking to the Ephesians as Gentiles. He's talking about himself as a Jew. See, Paul didn't exactly see himself in this category because the Jewish nation wasn't structured after the nations of the earth. They, lived, they, they marched to the beat of a different drummer. I'm not saying they were right with God as a nation, but they weren't like the other nations of the world. The Jewish nation had the prophets and the promises and the covenants and the blessings. Paul didn't put himself in that category. But when it comes to the passions of the flesh, he says we're all the same. We're all the same. These desires within our body, the corrupt 
the desires of the body that corrupt our body and our mind. Now, in Romans chapter 1, you read about the Gentile desires, what it does to them, and it looks like our culture. But Paul says, I'm not a Romans 1 sinner, I'm a Romans 2 sinner. Where the desires of his mind and his body was he could attain righteousness by keeping the law. And I think I'm blameless. And so in the Gentiles have to repent of their sinful desires which lead to debauchery and hedonism. But Paul and the Jewish remnant have to repent of their desires that they thought they could attain righteousness, the righteousness of God apart from Christ. Both were driven by sinful desires. Both were alienated from a most holy God. And so Paul says we were all driven by this. Paul finishes this initial point about our deadness by saying, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature. We are sinners. We, are, we sin because we're sinners. An apple tree bears apples because its nature is an apple tree. You don't plant that apple tree thinking, you know, you, you, pant, you went down to riches, you bought this apple tree, and uh, you paid good money for it, and you're like, well, I hope it's an apple tree. Well, no, that's what it is. That's the nature of the tree. An apple tree isn't going to bear figs. It's not going to have acorns on it. Its nature is an apple tree. So it's going to bear apples. That's its nature. You are going to sin because your nature is a nature of sin. Now, that's not popular in our culture because in our culture, people want to say, yes, we have problems. We even sin. Okay, I'll grant you that we sin. But if the problem is I sin, it's something I do, and I can fix what I do. I'll just try harder. You know, Ben Franklin had this list of virtues. I'm going to work on these virtues, and I'm going to perfect myself. But the problem with Ben Franklin, which is your problem, and which is my problem, is not just that I sin, the problem is I'm a sinner. The root is deeper than that. And while I may try to change some behavior, we call it behavioral modification, I can't change who I am on the inside. And so Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That idea of children of wrath, which is another horrible term in our culture, doesn't Paul mean to say, and we were sorry children, we were mournful children, we were like lost children. He says we're children of wrath. It's the wrath of God. And it's hard to talk about the wrath of God, or it's hard for people to think about the wrath of God. They don't think seriously about it because they don't think seriously about their sin. If you think seriously about your sin, if you recognize your sin in all of its ugliness, the wrath of God is a logical consequence. And so Paul is not afraid to say, we were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. That's how bad it is, this state of death, which takes us back to the question. So again, what happened to change the way in which they once walked by nature? You once followed the course of this world. You once followed the prince of the power of the air. You were energized by the devil. You once were ruled by the passions of your flesh. They affected your body and they affected your mind. So what happened? What changed? Why aren't we there now? William Hendrickson has an answer. He died in 1982, the year I got married. First set of commentaries I ever started building was William Hendrickson, and it was a good choice. 
because William Hendrickson has fascinating things to say. He puts it like this. As far as the present paragraph is concerned, the tragic account of man's forlorn condition is finished. But the main idea with which the apostle started out has not yet been expressed. The words, and you, and the object of the chapter's opening sentence must not be left hanging in midair. The Ephesians cannot be left in their state of wrath and condition of misery. Both the object and the Ephesians must be rescued. And it is high time for this to be done. Are you ready for the rescue? What happened? What changed everything? The answer is in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. If death is not the problem, life is not the solution. Paul says, even when we were dead, dead, no life, not whole with God, no spark of goodness within us, in our deadness, God loved. Didn't God just say he hated it? His, his wrath was being poured out or, or stored up against us? Yes, he did. That was the verse right before. Both are true. Left in our own state of unrepentant sin, God's wrath stands against us. But God in his love makes alive. Probably um, some of the a concise way of appreciating what takes place is in a sermon by Tim Keller on these concepts of the graciousness of God's salvation. This ties in really well with where we were at in Acts as well. Why is Cornelius a God-fearer? So listen to, uh, I've reduced a 45-minute message down to this piece that really illustrates this grand introduction in verses 4 and 5, but God, and then he'll talk about why. Why is there life when we were in such a state of death? So listen to Tim Keller's explanation, and I'll open it up for comments and questions. See, I don't think the real problem is teaching about election. I don't think the real problem is teaching that we are not children who can believe. We believe because of See, I don't think the real problem with this teaching about election. I don't think the real problem with the teaching that we are not chosen because we believe, we believe because we're chosen, is because it's perplexing. Though there's lots of mystery, and I think I try to at least make it a little easier in the last 10 or 15 minutes to, for you, if you are perplexed. The real problem is insulting. When Timothy McVeigh was executed, did you remember, did you, anybody see what his last words were? He didn't actually have last words. What he did for his last words was he passed out the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Uh, it's kind of an old chestnut, but it's fairly famous. The last lines go like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And frankly, though it's not very good poetry, that is the essence of the Western mindset. That is the essence of what we are raised in. That's what we are told by, our, by the media. You are in charge of your fate. And this comes right against that, just like that. It is insulting. Jesus says, unless there's an intervention, you're going to starve spiritually. If you're, there's any hope for you, it's going to have to be sheer intervention of grace. 
You are helpless. You are impotent. You are not the master of your fate. You're not the captain of your soul. And we hate it. But that's not a good enough reason, by the way, to reject it. Because if you look at this, where he says, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here's the sweetness. It means God is a God of sheer grace and a God of overwhelming beauty. There is nothing in you that got it there. I mean, this came, true, this came home to me years ago. I haven't, I mean, whenever we do a question and answer time on this and somebody asks a question about it, I bring this up all the time. I'm glad to be able to do it in front of everybody instead of just 100 people or so that show up after that. But years ago, it all crystallized to me when a teacher was trying to get this idea across, this idea of cho choosing and God's election. It was, uh, there was a bunch of us young students who were all in college, and there was a girl in particular who was braver than the rest of us guys, and she was saying, this is ridiculous, I hate this idea. And the teacher got down on his knees in front of her on the rug and said, let me ask you a question. Why are you a Christian? A lot of people aren't. Why are you a Christian? And she says, because I believed. He says, right. Why did you believe? And so many other people haven't. And she said, I guess because I repented. He says, good. Why did you repent? And so many other people haven't. She says, well, because I admitted that I was a sinner. She, he says, right. Why did you admit? And it dawned on me. I can't remember if it dawned on her or not. But I remember it dawned on me. I don't even remember her name. I remember what she looked like. I remember the back of her head. It dawned on me, if I believe, if, I be, if I'm chosen because I believe, that means I'm a Christian because I'm a little better, I'm a little wiser, I'm a little humbler. There's something in me that's better. And what that means is, there's something in me that brought the grace of God into my life, that if I lose that, I lose it. But if I believe because I'm chosen, then that means that the love of Christ has come into my life unconditionally. Unconditionally. It means there's no way I can lose it. And it also means there is absolutely nothing about me that makes me any better than anyone else. N none of my insight, none of my faith, none of my virtue, none of my character, nothing. God is a God, therefore, of absolute and complete and sheer grace. And, that's, and by the way, it's not just this verse. In Romans 10.20, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. John 15.16, I chose you. You have not chosen me. I have chosen you that you would go and bear fruit. See that? The good works and fruit is not the reason for the choice. You see? The choice is the reason for the good works and the fruit. Acts 16.14, Lord, open Lydia's heart to give heed to the message of Paul didn't say that because she gave heed, God opened her heart. It says God opened her heart, and that's the only reason she could give heed to the message of Paul. Acts 13, 48, they heard Paul, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It doesn't say as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. It says as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And what that means is sheer grace. See, an awful lot of people say, I believe I'm saved by grace. But what they really mean is, I'm saved by grace because I was open to it. You see, I humbled myself. I submitted myself. But you see, this teaching says, you only humbled yourself and submitted yourself because you were saved by grace. See, the submitting and the humbling and the repenting happens because you're saved by grace. The salvation by grace does not happen because you submitted and humbled yourself. But we're saved by grace. What are your comments and questions?
Yep. Yeah. While we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. You know, you know, I wanted to say something when Joe made the comment, you know, but there are qualifications. Like, you know, you read, you know, and you're right. But the question behind that is, but why? Why was he praying? Why was he devout? You know, why was he a, a god fear? That goes back to grace. It goes back to grace. Grace is what? Grace is at the root of the forgiveness of sins and salvation. Yeah. And that grace is there even if you got more recently. Sure. Right, absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, very few of us probably when we, well, that's not always the case. I mean, some people when they're saved as adults, they have a much greater understanding of the transaction of salvation. But if you were saved as a child, you, your understanding was probably a childish understanding. And, and it was only through a lot of years in Bible teaching you were awakened to really what it meant that you were saved by grace. Uh, I certainly, it, it was a slow train coming in my life, for sure. You know, it's interesting because we talk about peace in Sunday school, and there's kind of like a two-part meaning to peace. There's that peace between, until I understood the truth of what, the full implication. You didn't have the benefits, yeah, of a better understanding of grace. I mean, Cindy and I attended a free Methodist church in Lincoln many years ago, and and it was a very small church, an elderly, elderly congregation, and because they didn't understand grace well, they believed you could lose your salvation. And some of the most, some of the most godly people, or as godly people as I've ever met in my life, they were such good prayers, but they were always, afraid. they would pray that they would hang on, that they would hang on to the end. Because God's grace was theirs because they're hanging on. No, God's grace is God's grace. You, you will persevere because that's what God's grace is in, will ensure. He which has begun a good work in you will see it through to completion. Joe Ash. I think that grace has sense. There's an external call. The gospel goes out to all. And, you know, the, Matthew's gospel says that many are called and few are chosen. The gospel call goes out. But there has to be a response and that response will be the will be the result of a gra- a work of grace where a sinner is made alive. Otherwise, it's not like people. Are, oh, I wish, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not chosen. You know, D.L. Moody and several others. If you want to know if you're chosen, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you'll find out you were chosen. And if you if you don't want to believe the gospel, it's because you don't want to believe the gospel. You get everybody gets what they want. God changes your want. He changes all that's been corrupted by sin so that you want something different than your deadness. Anybody else? Eve. Sanctification is a work in progress. There's moving forward. There's slipping back. I mean, it's, there's good and bad, but it's in the course of one's life it is being more perfected in Christ. So that, uh, you know, the, there's errors on both ways, right? Some people lose the joy of their salvation because, oh, I sinned, I must not even be saved. But other people are like, oh, doesn't make any difference how I've lived the last 10 years of my life. I know I'm justified because I joined a church or I got baptized or I took communion or whatever the case may be. You know, and that's a problem too. So you're right, sanctification is a work in progress. We are being saved. It's a process. We were saved. Justification. You're declared righteous in Christ. 
But the process of being wooed away from sin, and then ultimately, even the presence of sin will be removed and you'll be glorified when Christ comes back in power and glory. So you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. All three are true in Scripture. That's the process of salvation. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.